Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 71 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. We are part of the Hooked on Wrestling podcast network, and we are coming at you on Nitro Week here on hookedonwrestling.co.uk. And I am joined, as always, by my esteemed co-host, sports journalist, features chief of hookedonwrestling.co.uk, Liam Happ. Good evening to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dean. I had do piazza for dinner, and I made it from scratch. So I am currently recording this while strutting around my living quarters. Very proud of how that came out. It was fantastic. And thinking of onions. Well, you, you know, we could have just left that. People would have just not assumed that. But now, as they listen to me, all they're going to smell is onions. But yes, I put onions. three different types of onions in this. This this was the Mac Daddy of Dupiazas. Ooh, three different onions. And the man you can hear groaning in disgust <laughs> in the background is our special guest we have a returning guest because we say we tell everyone the door is always open well if and he's he going to has... say that about my food i might have to slam it shut <laughs> well that's i can't get the smell of onions out my head now so, sorry <laughs> we are very pleased to welcome back to because wcw the former editor of power slam magazine finley martin good evening to you finn how are you doing I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah, doing very well. Just trying to uh, erase the smell of onions and also that <laughs> Kylie Minogue number as well. You know, that's that's going through my head as well now. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm doing all right. Actually, you know, I went for a coronavirus test today. So my voice is hopefully my voice will hold up. I'm you know, not feeling 100 percent. But the great thing about the podcasting world is I'm in Lancaster. You're in. Where are you, uh, Dean? Oh. I'm I'm uh, I'm in Shoreham by Sea on the south coast in Sussex. Where are you, Liam? Deepest, darkest well in Kent. Well, in that case, no one is going to transmit anything to anyone else. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's, that is a good thing about doing podcasts. You can do them when you're ill or if you are uh, suffering from the coronavirus. So I haven't found out yet whether I've got it. Hopefully I haven't, but wait for the test today. I don't know whether either of you have had the test. It's not very pleasant, but it is. No. If you need it, well, you're just going to get on with it and do it. So very well managed. And uh, yeah, that's done. So I uh, just thought I would share that with people. Then you get something like stuck all the way down your nose or something. Yeah, you got to put it in the back of your throat and oh, then you've got to put it in your nose. Test, and... isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not too bad, really. And it's very well managed. So, um, you know, very well put together. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, they've got the testing right now. So. If, um, so you did feel like they knew what they were doing. I mean, they've tested enough people, so they should do. So. Yeah, they've had practice. So yeah, I've I've once had a camera put down my up my nose and down my throat, and it was definitely not the most one of the most pleasant experiences of my life. So you have my sympathy. Um, now this has been a very busy time for you because uh, a new project is just dawning. 
Yes, Inside the Ropes magazine is launched on September 17th. So, um, yeah, finished my uh, submissions, uh, my contributions to the publication yesterday. Um, so, um, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a throwback to Power Slam, but certainly with a 2020 view on things. You know, some of the layouts are kind of similar to Power Slam layouts were many years ago, but it's got obviously a 2020 flavor to it. All the coverage is, you know, 100%. It's a 100% kayfabe free zone. Unlike Power Slam 25 years ago, when, <laughs> you know, you kind of, you, if you knew, then you knew what we were saying, but we didn't come out and say it in yeah. 95. That was a few years later, 99, I think it was. I always think the Chris Jericho interview was was our coming out party where we uh, where we finally said, yes, it is a work. Everything about it is, <laughs> you know, choreographed and working together and blah, blah, blah. So uh, these people are complaining with each other, not really trying to beat each other up. So, um, so yeah, that's Inside the Ropes uh, Wrestling Magazine. So I hope people will check that out. I mean, that really is. It's like a, a Mount Rushmore or a super group of, of wrestling journalists. I mean, you, there's yourself, there's uh, Bill Apter. Yes. Keith Elliott Greenberg, who was at the helm of WWF magazine for many, many years. Uh, who else? We've got James Dixon. Yes. Um, Brian Elliott, who was the editor of uh, Fighting Spirit magazine. So have I missed anyone out? All these people coming together. It's... Yeah, I mean, others like Kenny McIntyre. Tosh, who my yeah. podcasting power in crime, he's uh, he actually interviewed Ric Flair for the first wow. issue. So we got an exclusive interview there with Rick and the Sondra, who also does the podcast she's contributing, and other people as well. So yeah, there's a lot of people involved. Um and uh yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's um it's it's something in any way it's kind of familiar, but it's also new as well. And I'm still you know, really excited about wrestling and writing about wrestling and finding new things to write about wrestling. Just as I am with podcasting, I've only been podcasting for, I guess, maybe about four years. So I still feel very new to this. Uh, but what is it now? It'll be about 28, 28, 28 and a half years I've been writing about wrestling. So I feel like I've got the hang of that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. but still, you know, it's like anything. I guess it's like, you know, it's like many uh, jobs. You know, if you are if you enjoy your job and you know you've got pride in your job and you always want to try and push and challenge yourself, which I feel I do, there's always new things to write, new ways to write things. So to me, even though I've been doing this a long time, it all it feels shiny and new again. So yeah, I'm really I'm really pumped for this magazine and yeah, hope people will check it out. Yeah, and and the the world that we we live in, I mean, co coronavirus aside, just the the kind of the, the moral compass of the world that we live in is very different to the world from you know 20 years ago. I mean, how many times, Liam, have we looked at things when reviewing a show and we've just said it was a different time? And wrestling is is different to how it how it was back in the the glory days, I guess, of of Power Slam in the 90s. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in many ways, you look back on wrestling. I mean, for Inside the Ropes, we do like a 20 year old retro podcast review and i think it was last week we reviewed uh summer slam 2000 and you watch it and you just think there's just no way they could do those things now so many things they did like there was a match i completely forgot about it between the cat and terry runnels yeah and uh i like they were out there in in like their underwear and it's just you're just embarrassed to watch it you're thinking my god did this happen only 20 years ago it might as well have been 50 years ago, that was, I mean, 100 years ago, it just seems like another time. Well, it is another time, but it just seems like another world. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're wrestling, obviously, morally, it's moral compass. 
at times malfunctions, you know, to put it charitably. And certainly back in 2000, the things they did, and even just little things like that you don't really think about, like the signs you you, you read in the crowd, mm. just so like homophobic and missing, you know, like so many misogynists in the crowd with these awful signs. And you think, my God, this we're in the 2000s, we're in the new millennium, and people are writing these awful messages on placards and taking them to live wrestling shows that are televised. And, and what's more, they're not being confiscated. I mean, it's just some of the things that appear on those signs. You just, you know, you, 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 know, you, you start questioning, you start asking a lot of questions that you don't really want to ask. When yeah. you some, of the, some of the wording on those signs, some of those messages, and you think, I really wouldn't like to know that person. Well, thankfully now yes. we've evolved into an age where instead yes. we have uh, KKK outfits on video screens via Zoom. Well, well, yeah, that is an excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that did happen. Absolutely. Yes. It's only the technology of it that's uh, that's changed, not the actual morals, unfortunately. Yeah, very true. Yeah, that is an excellent point. Yeah, I think that appeared on, I think it ended up being on two episodes raw, I think. Yeah, I mean, I how they are they going to police this? They say they're, they're going to try and fix it. Someone's easily going to do something else daft, aren't they? Yeah, it's impossible yes. to prevent, but you just have to shut it shut it down once you you spot yeah. it, I guess. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's like on social media and it removing all the you know unpleasant posts and horrible things that people say to each other and all sorts of other dreadful content that's there. It's, I mean, I know you can see. I think there's about a thousand people um, visible on those LED screens, so you would think it should be easier for WWE to police it. But I mean. You know, it's like that's still a thousand people and they can't, I don't know how, how many people they would have, they will have each week observing what appears on those screens. Maybe they've employed a few more people. You know, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of unemployed people out there. Maybe they could, WWE could hire some of them to monitor what appears on those LED screens. And when something objectionable appears, shut it down immediately. But yeah, you're absolutely right to point out that footage. And and yeah, it's, I mean, what my point was that you, you don't see those awful signs in the crowd anymore yeah. and if they do pop up they disappear very quickly i mean obviously you don't see any signs in the crowd right now because there's no crowds there <laughs> I, i'm just imagining the situation of oh i've got myself a new job what have you what are you doing now thunderdome police <laughs> <laughs> well i mean obviously they need to take some more people on you know <laughs> clearly yes glide types <laughs> to pull the plug on these you know i mean just scumbags putting that stuff on there. I mean, anyway, let's move on. Move on. So, <laughs> inside the ropes magazine, it'll be out. What dates it out? Do you September seventeenth. So, uh, and yeah. and is that? Would I be able to get that in my local WH Smiths, or is it online? I'm afraid not. You won't be able to. You just got to the Inside the Ropes website. You can get a digital copy or it'll be a print copy as well. So you can subscribe to it there. So all the information is available via the Inside the Ropes website. Excellent. Well, best of luck with that. Very much looking forward to it. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. So we are we are in the midst of of um, of Nitro Week. Um, so Liam, if, if people aren't aware of Nitro Week on Hooks on Wrestling, what what's going on? 
Yeah, so around the time this episode will drop, because we're, we're going to land this, if, you, if you're catching this fresh, this is landing Thursday night, September the 3rd. On Friday, the September, September the 4th, it is 25 years to the date that WCW Monday Nitro first aired on TNT in the US. Uh, and obviously, for, for a lot of us, it's a, it's a very special memory, it's a very special time. And even the, the newer wrestling fans that come in, there's always a, a big influence of, of WCW, the Monday Night Wars, the NWO. There's always those little throwbacks, those little callbacks. So the, the legacy, the influence is, is hard to dispute. And that's why Paul Benson, the head honcho of Hooked on Wrestling, myself, Chris Hatch, the news editor, we all got our heads together and we decided to go for this night week we are celebrating all week long we've changed the branding on the website we are publishing an absolute shed load of special wcw original content uh each day i'm walking through like a potted history of of the monday night flagship show uh 95 96 nights all the way through to 2001 which will land on sunday we have got a time machine inspired delorean style what ifs put in uh today's wrestlers in nitro situations fantastic little series going on there uh paul himself is writing some great listicles like the 10 most influential figures 10 most cringeworthy moments all the highs and lows come and check it out and we've got some great podcast content as well all the guys part of the the network are doing wcw themed things and we also had yourself, Dean, interview the one and only Sonny Ono. What a guy, Sonny Ono, the greatest salesman in the world. Yes, fantastic interview. If you haven't heard it yet, then uh, check out uh, our episode number 70, which we put out a few days ago. Um, great guy, great guy to speak to and, and get some insight into uh, the, the behind the scenes goings on at WCW. But, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, if if we now if we're going to talk about about Nitro, we also have to kind of talk about Monday Night Raw because obviously the, the Nitro came about in in competition head to head with with uh, Raw after Eric Bischoff basically went to Ted Turner and said, well, he was asked the question. This is what um, Guy Evans' book tells us about, wasn't it? He was asked the question, what would it take to to compete with uh, the WWF, and he basically said a prime time show head to head with them, and 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 unexpectedly he was he was given it. And I mean, at at the time it was announced, Finn, that that WCW would have a show called Monday Nitro going head to head with Raw in in Power Slam Towers. What was the reaction? Did you think that the man was insane? Um, that was very much the mood in wrestling at the time, and lots of people confidently predicted dismal failure catastrophic failure for eric bischoff and wcw going head to head with the established monday night raw brand on usa network obviously raw had launched uh, back in january of 1993 so it'd been on the air for more than two and a half years in that slot um i mean there's like you'll find old footage for like paul Heyman from when he was running ecw you know, just like predicting slaughter for WCW. And like pretty much everyone you spoke to was like, yeah, what the hell were they thinking? And you sort of get the impression from that story that Bischoff told was that he was almost 
you know, saying, well, Ted, this is what we need. You know, we need to go head to head with Vince. Probably not thinking for a moment that Ted Turner would green light, would rubber stamp yeah. that request. And it was almost like, yeah, well, there's no way Ted's going to do it. So I can say this and come out of here, you know, strut out there looking tough. And then when Ted says, OK, go for it. And Eric Bischoff's like, oh, my God. So, <laughs> oh, be careful what you wish for type scenario. So yeah. I'm not convinced that Bischoff was ever serious or was he ever desirous of this? But it was something that he felt like he had to say. Um, otherwise, he would look like he had no backbone. Um, and and then Ted miraculously gave it to him. Uh, but yeah, the mood very much in wrestling at the time was WCW is doomed. They are going to have their asses handed to them. They are going to be humbled, humiliated, embarrassed. I mean, what do you remember about this time, Dean? I mean, obviously you were involved in wrestling at this point. Yeah. And you'd been following wrestling for many years. We I think we'd met for the first time maybe in... Could have been at the was it the famous Tony Sutton convention? Convention in '93, it would have been, yes. Yeah. So you've yeah. been around long enough to to know what was going on at this point. So what was your take on it when it was announced? Very similar, I think. In the, in the, I mean, everyone knew WCW was the the distant number two to to the number one of the WWF, and it um it did it did seem a, a, a little wishful thinking should we say because i mean we we knew that there there is a certain there are certain fans who would watch wcw and would not watch wwf because you know, especially around you know, your carolinas that sort of area the wcw hotbeds yeah and similarly you would have a group of fans that would that would watch wwf and nothing else and, and they're pretty much all around the world essentially but You've then got your 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 floating fans as such, or the and I think what happened over time is that wrestling boomed and we got more and more casual fans coming. But I mean, similar I think to when when TNA briefly launched um, their TV show on a Monday, head to head with Raw for a hand, literally a handful of weeks, that went disastrously badly. And I think we we all pretty much thought that that was exactly how it would, it would work out for, for WCW. But I mean, what they did was they launched a product that was very different to, to raw because people forget that the, the format of raw as we know it now and the format of raw in 1993 were very, very different, weren't they? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you would have the occasional big match. I mean, who can forget Undertaker versus Damien Demento on the, on the <laughs> show. Who can forget that? But no, I mean, seriously, I mean, there was obviously Razor Ramon, one, two, one, two, three, Kid. That was May of 1993. Um, and, you know, some would say it was one of the one, two, three Kid's best ever matches was with Bret Hart in July of 1994. So, I mean, Raw wasn't all squash matches. It was predominantly squash matches. It wasn't yeah. that often that you would get like a, a like a marquee match or a match between two big names. There was lots of squashes, so I mean it was in, it was a lot. The show had a lot of energy and the, it was paced. Had uh, the pace was really fast, so I mean it was it was very different from like Superstars or Challenge or the other shows at the time. It was designed to be more fast paced and was was more exciting as a result, but it was not. You know, it was not. Like uh, it wasn't providing like big match lineup week after week. 
Yeah. And obviously with, with Nitro, what did we get week two? Paul Hulk Hogan versus Lex Luger on free yeah. TV. Yeah, it was it, it was a totally different feel. I mean, just to to give you uh, an example of, uh, by comparison, the the first that first episode of of Raw, eleventh of January ninety three, and the lineup was as well as the Undertaker Damien Demento match you mentioned. There was a squash match with the Steiners, the uh, the Executioners, the the legendary team of uh, Dwayne Hardy and Barry uh, Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy under yes. masks. <laughs> you also had Yokozuna, Coco Beware. Um, so obviously none of them are very hard to predict the result of. None of them go more than four minutes. You also have Shawn Michaels against Max Moon for the IC title. That goes 10 minutes, but again, the result's never in doubt. And, and over the, the course of time, generally speaking, it, it's 50-50 between squashes and feature matches, but those feature matches are largely one-sided. Um, I suppose the only exception I can think of early doors is Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect, where Flair departs. But I think that was oh, just yes. the timing was just to because they needed to get flair out the door basically <laughs> yeah yeah agreed yeah that was one of the big big matches of um of the early uh, months of actually probably when would that have been broadcast was that was that january or february it was broadcast it was like the third or fourth raw wasn't it it was very early yeah on. i think it was february yeah that's right because he uh flair returned at super Bowl the next month didn't it that's right february yes. three yes that makes sense yeah. so it was a, a period interviewing period where he wasn't on any tv but yeah i mean that was seen as a big match at the time and i think that was something that was i think you know flair had said you know listen i'm not making the money wcw's made me this offer vince you said that you give me a release whenever i want it i would like it now and it all happened i think very quickly yeah and hence that match being put together hastily but you compare that to the the first episode of of nitro which obviously you'll remember well from liam from when we reviewed it just kick off our nitro watch alongs and you've got pillman v liger hogan v bubba rogers flair v sting all feature matches all big names no squashes whatsoever and it's very significant to note that the next live raw that they do because obviously they type taped once a month so they had a couple in the can but the next live raw they taped at the end of september 95 there's no squash matches at all um you you have um that that live raw has matches of of marty Ginetti v skip which is is a sort of an even match up you can't immediately tell who's going to win that same with undertaker v david boy smith and we also have the tag titles changes the smoking guns beat Aaron Hart and yokozuna so we we immediately see that nitro's um style and presentation has forced the wwe to change tack with their flagship show yeah, I mean it's put the wind up WWF, hasn't it? Yeah, they and it's also worth noting that Nitro, despite that lineup, Nitro at this moment in time was not WCW's flagship show yet. No, I think Saturday Night was still classed as their flagship show, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, we, we, that's, we, that's the period we're discussing now, isn't it? Because we're uh, March, just entering April '96 on the watch-alongs, and I think it is pretty much when Scott Hall wanders in, and they go up to two hours, that's pretty much the point, I think they really, obviously, start prioritising Nitro. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was May, May 27th, 1996, mm. wasn't it, the first two-hour Nitro, and, I mean, just before we recorded uh, today, I decided to watch the May 20th, 1996 Nitro for some reason, and... Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, that had like Flair versus Eddie Guerrero. It's like a really good match. You had Arn Anderson versus The Giant. 
you know, it's got Ric Flair on the commentary, uh, the commentary table. I never thought Ric Flair was very good at commentary, but actually he was a barrel of laughs. He really was. We were working there with Bischoff and Bobby Heenan. And uh, I mean, he was, you know, you could tell he was having a really good time. He just felt really relaxed and comfortable. And there was some pretty good banter there between the three of them. Uh, but the whole show, like a lot of energy. We'd had a match there between Diamond Dallas Page and I think it was Brad Armstrong. You know, DDP's just getting the push at this point and feels like DDP knows that he's finally going somewhere. And you can see he's got some confidence in himself and, and his push because he, he's got a feeling that the future is going to be brighter than his past. And, you know, it's a big crowd and a really lively atmosphere. And it, it just felt like a big show, did Nitro? And it's still one hour then. And strangely, it wasn't until the very end of the show that they, they made a big meal out of it going to two hours the next week. Well, we've got uh, we got that to look forward to in a few a few weeks time, I guess, Liam. Yeah, I'm enjoying the watch-alongs. I mean, 1996 is a good period uh, to enjoy the show as as we're reliving right now. But uh, yeah, all the good stuffs to come. Yeah. So Nitro actually had its its first ratings win over Raw all the way back in week number four, um, which I guess surprised. <laughs> An, an awful lot of people, myself included, and, and what when when that news came through, and when you you could see the how they were presenting this show, what was the uh, what was the feeling for for you and uh, in the pages of Power Slam, Finn? Um, well, didn't Nitro? Well, Nitro didn't Nitro get the win September 11th in the first head-to-head meeting? I thought he did. I'll go back and check that, but uh... I'm sure it did. In fact, I'm looking at the pages right here of pro wrestling through the power slam years and because uh, the first episode of course was september 4th unopposed yeah raw was preempted that night by coverage of the u.s open tennis tournament so i mean it was chosen of course that night we had lex luger making his shock appearance at the end a huge shock to everyone in wwf as well because he's his contract had expired i think a couple of weeks prior to that Sting was aware of this. Sting had mentioned it to Bischoff. Bischoff got in touch with Luger. This is all top secret clandestine, your cloak and dagger stuff. Uh, Bischoff ends up signing Luger to the contract and he makes the appearance at the end of the show. Vince McMahon's like, you know, he goes ballistic when he sees this. You know, he's absolutely furious about it. And then that leads to Luger versus Hogan week two, which is September 11th, of course. Yeah. Uh, and that goes head to head with a match between Shawn Michaels and Sid, which, as you point out, was pre-taped. Um, and uh, Nitro, from what I can work out, scored a 2.5 rating to Raw's 2.2 that evening. Uh, OK, I've got different figures from where I've been looking at, but I don't. Um, that's where I've come from. I've got 2.5 for Nit- Raw and 2.4 for Nitro, but it's it's very close and. Um, and it's not, yeah, but but Rob, I mean, essentially, Nitro is is getting very comparable week on week. Nitro is getting very comparable ratings, and yes. and the the slaughter that was predicted by the likes of Paul Heyman hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. You know, all the people are just like, and you know what wrestling people are like, especially you know the wrestling media. You know, they're not really big on admitting that they're wrong. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's I don't know what it is, pride or lack of self-esteem or whatever. But, you know, when you've blown it, I just feel like you got to hold your hand up and say, listen, we blew it. 
you know, I did that enough times. I mean, anybody who's willing to volunteer opinion has to be um, aware of the fact that occasionally they're going to be wrong. And the best thing you can do when you are is just to put your hand up and say, I was wrong. So, I mean, yeah, I didn't really see that many, don't recall really seeing that many apologies from yeah. uh, from the people who were blasting Bischoff and Hogan and WCW and predicting doom and gloom for them when they actually held their own or, or even, you know, defeated uh, WWF. I mean, it was close at the beginning. It was close right up until uh, May of 1996, really back and forth with trading wins there was no real clear-cut winner in the ratings yeah. until scott hall turned up and they went to two hours um but um but yeah i mean it was it was astounding but i mean as you as you pointed out wcw came at this with the big guns they came at this with big matches with a different look to it i'm sure that first episode was held at the mall of america wasn't mall it? of america it in yeah minneapolis yes That's right. so it had a very different appearance to like center stage which I always, to me, was just such an anemic atmosphere. You know, you had all those fans there who didn't pay to get in, and it never felt natural. It just seemed artificial. And just, you know, also remember those WCW Worldwide tapings where, again, it was a theme park crowd and they weren't wrestling yeah. fans. And it just felt so phony, the, the response to it all. Um, but, I mean, you know, there we were, WCW was putting a show on in a in a large shopping centre. I believe it was actually, the, at the time, was the largest mall in America, I believe. I could could be wrong about that. I know it was one of the biggest ones. And it had a very different look to it. Um, and then they went to arenas and the fans were into this product because it was different and it felt modern. It felt like they were, you know, pushing things forward and trying to break boundaries. And also, as you mentioned they brought Jushin Liger in from New Japan to face Brian Pillman because they'd had that celebrated series back in 1991-1992. Um, you know, and they felt that this could be a really good match for Pillman, and it was. And the whole thing just was kind of infused with energy. Uh, it just felt like you were witnessing some type of, like, mini-revolution. Um, so I think that was you know, what really, as I said, really put the wind up WWF. And they reacted to this and changed their approach to putting out TV, which was the right decision for them. I mean, you know, it's not just in politics that you have to do a U-turn. You know, <laughs> when you recognize that you're going in the wrong direction, you do the damn U-turn, do it as quickly as you can and try and make up that lost ground. And over time, I guess we see then, because the, it was always pay-per-view numbers with a, with a big revenue generator and the thing that, wrestling companies or WWF and WCW focused on. Yes. Uh, at what point do we, does this cause the Monday Night Wars cause the focus then to be on TV? Because I, I remember many times yourselves in Power Sam and, and many other observers as well thinking, why on earth are you putting certain matches on free television when you could make a lot of money by, well, Hogan Luger, for example. Yeah. You could make a lot of money by putting that on pay-per-view. You know, give, the, the phrase was always giving it away on free TV. Yeah, I mean, it did seem strange at the time, and ratings hadn't been something that anyone was really that bothered about. I think, I mean, Saturday night's main event, I know when WWF had that gig with uh, NBC for Saturday night's main event, the ratings were very important than, at that point. Um, but, I mean, the, there was never really that much talk about the ratings for the other TV because it mostly was mostly comprised squash matches. Mm. The TV was 
seen as a vehicle to promote the house shows where people bought tickets and bought the merch. Um, or, and the TV was also designed to promote the pay-per-views um, where the big matches took place. And, you know, that was the big revenue generator. So, yeah, the three big numbers were, were house shows, merch and pay-per-view. And TV was never really seen as a big money maker. I mean, you'd have to really go back to the Saturday night's main events where, you know, big matches were given away on free TV. But if you go back to those matches at Saturday night's main event, that was kind of booked in a way like how in a way that in, in the similar way that Nitro would be booked, certainly in the early days where you'd have these big matches. But the big matches were designed to promote other matches which were the pay-per-view matches. So, I mean, a lot of thought did go into it. Or maybe you would have like a, a match at Saturday night's main event that would take place, but it would be at the very end of a program. Like, for instance, uh, you know, there's a huge Hogan-Paul-Ondorf feud in, I think it was 86. Yeah. Uh, they had like that enormous feud. Well, the their feud-ending match was a cage match, and that was broadcast on Saturday night's main event, and that did a pretty big number. But at that point, it felt that, it was felt that all the drawing power had been extracted from that feud so they could give the match away on TV because everyone who was going to pay to see it had already done so. Right. So, I mean, I think Nitro was really booked like that. I mean, obviously, Hogan and Luger had the match, but they weren't going to be wrestling on the next pay-per-view. That sadly was Hogan and the Giant, wasn't it? <laughs> that was the next WCW. Didn't yeah. Did they have a fall? Hang on a minute. Did they have a fall brawl pay per view in '95? I think they did, didn't they? they? Did, yeah, sure. September. Yeah, September would be full brawl. Yeah. Yeah. So that would have been war games, right? Would it have been war games the main yeah. event? They had, they had war games. It was the Dungeon of Doom versus the Hulkamaniacs, which was the oh. one that was supposed to be Vader, and then he did something very naughty backstage. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Paul Orndorff. I mean, what a coincidence. <laughs> we go back. It goes full circle to Paul Orndorff. That's it. So, I mean, Hogan Luger, I mean, because the Dungeon of Doom ended up running in on the Hogan Luger match, didn't they? So, of course, they weren't going to have a finish. It was a DQ yes. non-finish there. So yeah, that was designed for the pay-per-views, the clean finishes. Exactly. <laughs> so that was designed to promote the pay-per-view, which I think probably was the following weekend or if not the following weekend, 13 days later. So in a sense, yeah, he did give it away, but because it wasn't part of a big story and there was no finish to it, it they still felt like it had some pay-per-view juice left in it. So I do understand why they did what they did, and it just required more thought. If you think of the way they used to do TV, it used to be very easy because it would be squash matches, pre-tape promos in which someone would say, I'm going to beat you up. You know, and, and then you'd have your, your localised promos as well. So, I mean, there wasn't really a huge amount of effort that went into putting TV together. With Saturday night's main event, there was, and certainly with Nitro and then Raw, once Nitro arrived, there was. They had to work a lot harder on the TV. Mm. Yeah, it, it, very, and that is the, the, the legacy of Nitro in one or one of the legacies of Nitro because obviously you know Raw in the way we know it now we we get well you, you'll get very very occasional squash matches to, to put a new character over I guess and that'll be everything else is, is feature matches yeah yeah absolutely and and it's it is kind of amazing to go back and watch those old programs and you think well you mean people watch this 
Well, a lot of people didn't because, I mean, TV ratings weren't really that important back then. Uh, there wasn't a massive amount of emphasis on it because the money was coming from the house shows, the pay-per-views, the merch. And also, of course, TV rights fees weren't such a big part of the business. I mean, now, as they have been for many, many years, TV rights fees are WWE's number one revenue stream. So yeah. say they are in AEW as well. So the whole TV business has changed as well. I think that's something that we need to stress. Mm. So at what point in time would you say that you realized um, in your in your articles that uh, that Nitro wasn't a flash in the pan, that it was here to stay? I would say probably probably by about the end of end of 1995. Um, I mean, I think actually, no, that's not probably earlier than that. I mean, you know, you looked at week two and you think, yeah, they did some big, a big number here, but they've given away a big match. And it's like, well, how are they going to be doing on week five or six? And they did have staying power there. I think it's also worth, worth noting as well um, that WWF at the time was pretty weak. You know, this was the year, let's not forget, in which Mabel became king of the ring. This was, <laughs> you know, the, the year in which they gave us In Your House 4, you know, one of the worst pay-per-views ever. So, I mean, WWF was, I mean, it was in a weakened state. I mean, it really was. So, I mean, for WCW, which had, was adding talent, remember they brought in Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko from ECW? Um, they were basically told by New Japan, you know, you need to ex- you need to accept that w- those WCW contracts. Uh, you need to be part of this. You know, this is where we want you to be. And they were told and they uh, complied with that instruction. Um, so, I mean, Bischoff became very aggressive in recruiting talent to try and make Nitro uh, different from Raw to become you know, to create more of a distinction between Nitro's matches and Raw's matches. So, I mean, I think really by, yeah, probably within two months, certainly by Halloween Havoc, um, it was clear that Nitro was here to stay. And and we also had the, the what I think at the time was shocking um, situation where Eric Bischoff would basically, and we've heard this many times on our watch longs already, Liam, that Eric Bischoff would basically tell you to stay with live Nitro, but don't bother watching Raw because, you know, Shawn Michaels beat Sid with a super kick or something. And <laughs> and, and this just, you just never got this before. It, it, it was unheard of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, this was uncharted territory. And I think to really hammer that home, I'll set the scene for myself. I've discussed on previous episodes about my own viewing habits. You know, I was quite, I was younger than you two guys. I'll get that out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah. How how old were you when the first Nitro went out? So when the first Nitro went out, I would have been 10. I was born in May 1985. I was a 10 year old for the first Nitro. And I came to, to watch WCW like a lot of people listen uh, from the UK via the ITV worldwide things. And even then, as a youngster, I would watch the Saturday afternoon reruns as opposed to the the storied late night, was it Friday, Dean? It was on Saturday night, Saturday Sunday morning, night, Sunday 3 a.m. Yeah. See, I, I'd get the, I'd get the, like the 1 p.m. one alongside the NBA roundup and other fluff they'd use to fill up until they got to blind date and thing and good things in the <laughs> evening. So um, we then 
then got to a gap. I don't remember seeing any Hogan era stuff. So it's safe to say that around mid late '94, I've lost touch with any any sort of access to WCW. And for me, hearing about Nitro and a couple of other things, uh, I I heard about it, but the, the gravitas was completely lost on me. You know, so. Uh, the, the whole idea of a head-to-head is like, you know, head-to-head with what? I was watching um, repeats of Raw on Sky 1 at tea time, if I remember correctly. So so the whole situation for me was completely different. And yet, here here I am finding out, you know, obviously, like quite some time ago, but still not at the time. I'm finding out about all this, and it still strikes me as as completely unheard of and amazingly fresh. And any time I speak to someone who just has no real living wrestling fandom during that 95 to 2001 era, when they see what happened or you explain to them what happened, it completely strikes them. So that's the impact it's had. It's not just for those who watched at the time that are unheard of. It still still jars you, even in retrospect. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Eric was, uh, I mean, he was aggressive, he was confrontational, I mean, it was open hostility, and it was like seen as like, how dare you, how dare Eric Bischoff give away the results of Raw, you know, during episodes of Nitro, I mean, wasn't there, uh, wasn't there an episode, I'm sure you'll remember this, you probably covered it, called the Raw Bowl? And Eric Bischoff referred to it as the Toilet Bowl. Toilet Bowl, yeah, yes. we did, I think yeah, we are past that, aren't we? That. Yeah, we have. I always remember that one. It's like Eric's just like, I mean, he's fearless. I mean, it's just bring it on. And when you think about it, you know, look at what Vince did in, you know, 80, December 83, you know, 84, 85, what he did. And lots of WWF fans were up in arms. How dare Eric Bischoff do this? It's a disgrace. You know, he's there picking on WWF. And it's like he's actually only 11 years earlier that Vince has basically trashed the entire territory system. And, like, Vince is there playing the victim card. Yeah. You know, it's just like... And, it, you know, running the magazine at the time, I've been doing it long enough at this point that I kind of knew what I was on about. I knew my wrestling history a little bit, at least. <laughs> I mean, as you both know, it takes a long time to get your head around this stuff. And as you just said there, Liam, ex- you know, people probably are aware of this period, but those who didn't live through it, it's still kind of a little bit of a mystery to them how significant this all was, how consequential, how massive all this was, and uh, how outraged people were during this period. And that the people on either side really did dislike each other. That was not a work. You know, and that WCW staff were told, you know, not to fraternize with, you know, members of the who worked for WWF. You know, I remember hearing stories of like people who worked backstage. Uh, in WCW, and there would be in a, I don't know, like a convention or some sort of anything that was, you know, these are, you know, not wrestlers, but people who, who were involved in WCW are not wrestlers, and um, and it was kind of like almost pistols at dawn between WCW and WWF. There was real hatred between the two sides, and this is something that I think a lot of people, and I can understand it because unless you witnessed it and went through it and were told the stories and it is sometimes hard to get your head around, you know, how, you know, the level of hostility that existed back then, because, you know, you know, these two were kind of, um, you know, they were at each other's throats and it did feel like, you know, they call it the Monday Night War and it was a war. 
they were trying to take each other down. But yeah, just going back to, you know, Vince and what he'd done just 11 years earlier, and he's crying foul after what he pulled with all the territories. So the hypocrisy of that was something that, you know, I was only too eager to point out in Power Slam. Yeah, it's it's amazing to read some some of the things in Power, not only in, in Power Slam but in the the Nitro book with Guy Evans who we we've, we've talked with as well, where that's also documented. And I mean, there's also not only running the territories out and taking all of their top stars, um, but there are examples of where they would run big shows head to head with WCW pay per views and was it Clash of the Champions? Six six that clashed with WrestleMania five. Well, no, they put the survivor series on against Starcade or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, survive. So survivor series, that was Crockett at this point. Um, Crockett's first pay-per-view was Starcade 19, sorry, 1987. Um, and then, you know, Vince, he had the power. He'd been on pay-per-view since 85. So he'd run a bunch of events. Obviously WrestleMania three had taken place that year was the biggest wrestling event up to that point on pay-per-view i think did something like four hundred thousand buys or something like that huge huge number by the standard of the time so yeah he pulled his strings he pulled you know he called in some favors shall we say and he made it very difficult for people to watch starcade 1987 very few um cable or satellite companies actually offered it to their customers because vince said listen you can you can have my event, Survivor Series, or and if you have my event, you can't have the Crockett event. You can't have both. So he basically gave the cable companies an ultimatum. It's me, my event uh, on. You can't you can't screen both my event and the Crockett event. Uh, and most of the cable companies went with Vince because he had the track record, and they of course all take a percentage of each pay-per-view order that's made so it was in their financial interests to back the mcmahon the wwf horse in that race and really crockett i mean he didn't get started kind of fell at the first fence so i mean it was an absolute paste in there and then of course you know crockett his revenge was clash of the champions uh number one in march of 88 which went head to head with wrestlemania 4 so you know crockett you know he got stuck in as well you know also i think wasn't the bunkhouse stampede uh that was january of 88 and vince i think ran royal rumble head to head on that head to head with that on the usa network that was right yeah bunkhouse stampede was crockett's second no it wasn't it was his third pay-per-view no sorry Bunkhouse Stampede was Crockett's second pay-per-view. That was broadcast in January of 88. And Vince, to stick it to Crockett, he screened the Royal Rumble free to air on the USA Network head-to-head that night. And people watched, many wrestling fans watched the Royal Rumble for free instead of buying Crockett's event. And then Crockett's revenge was Clash of the Champions head-to-head with WrestleMania 4. Yeah, and then also there's I'm just looking now Clash of the Champions six, which was the Flavy Steamboat title match, I believe, and that went head to head with WrestleMania five, which was Hogan v Savage, yeah, the uh, Trump Plaza, yeah. And there's another thing someone pointed out to you on on Twitter recently, which I never I never realised. I don't know if if you um, you heard about this, but 
Um, there would be times, there was, there was a time where WCW, I wish I could remember which show it was, but WCW had a, a, a pay-per-view event um, and WWF booked the venue, the exact same venue the night before yeah. and ran the show as late as possible. <laughs> it, yeah, this massive loaded show with like you know, 14 matches that went yeah. on, probably went on longer than a 1PW show. Um, and, and therefore to give WCW as little time as possible yeah. to set the venue up. This did happen. And to ensure that all the fans who attended the, the WWF event on the Saturday night were so exhausted that when they watched the WCW <laughs> pay-per-view live in person the next night, yeah. you know, they were so you know knackered, they were lethargic, they didn't really respond to the matches. So it, it you know, dampened the atmosphere at the WCW event. So all these things went on. And this isn't like, this isn't some, you know, biased lunatic fan making this up. This really did occur. And they did everything they could to stick it to each other. This is how petty it got, basically. Yeah, yeah it's tremendous stuff. And and then, um, as, as we mentioned, May 27th, 96, Nitro expands to two hours. Scott Hall walks through the crowd, declares war on WCW as if he is still from the WWF doing the Razor Ramon accent and the mannerisms, which obviously then have to, to stop. Um, then we get the NWO angle, Hogan's heel turn, and... And this begins the that, the famous 83-week winning run against Raw. And, 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 I mean, Nitro was winning the, the ratings battle, but was WCW the, the biggest wrestling company in the world at this point in time? Well, well, do you want to answer that, Liam? What's your opinion of that? I'm doing a lot of talking here. I don't think I feel like Liam's getting, you know, getting, I can't get, get a word in edgeways. Well, it's not that. What it is, is basically when it comes to wrestling, and this is unanimous amongst British wrestling fans, the rule is, is when Finn Martin speaks, everyone listens. So we've been we've been happy to listen to Wax Lyrical in this great period, and we love your insight as someone who was working. You know, I, I know the feeling having covered all sorts of uh, different sports professionally, and obviously we hooked on wrestling, doing some wrestling media as well. Uh, I felt that difference between sitting at home with your feet up, tin of lager in your hand, enjoying some sports, and actually having to be on the desk and cover it and convey it and produce colour content for it. So I know the difference between the two, and that's why we were really curious to get you on here. But to answer that question, now you've asked it, Yes. Um, I think, obviously, I'd, I'd have to go purely to the metrics to know whether or not I'm being bang on here. But as, a, as an estimate, as a gauge, as a, as a recollection, uh, I think generally people regarded WCW as number one around 1997. And I think one of the one of the points that came up in another great piece of WCW-based literature, which is the death of WCW, written by Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds of WrestleCrap fame. Uh, one thing they wrote that stuck with me was that when wrestling companies do something good or something bad, it's not like everyone shows up or disappears at the drop of a hat. When you get good things going on, it builds up and you see the results of that good thing you've done in 96, you see it in 97. 
and they made that point especially about 98 nitro because 1998 nitro was red hot sold out crowds so culturally cool celebrities that packed crowds they had everything and yet you could see what they were doing that was gonna uh, caused them problems 99 onwards and lo and behold it did so I, I, I think that's fair to say that cr while we say that um, critically 1996 us diehards love it so much they reaped the true benefits of that over the next two years financially with the sellouts and the buy rates and things didn't they and that's when as Dave Meltz would say that's when you can really say someone's better rather than just TV ratings yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, 97, I think most people, um, I think even WWF people privately admitted that WCW was ahead, not just in the ratings, but also in the, the buy rates. Um, obviously, this was a year in which they WrestleMania 13 took place. And I think WCW had, I think they ran maybe, I think they had maybe three or four events that year that drew as many or more buys than the WWF did for WrestleMania. So, I mean, WCW was very much ahead. It felt like it had the energy. It felt like it felt like the thing about WCW and Bischoff was that he was so ambitious. And once he knew, I think the, what would have broken him was if Nitro had failed. I think he probably would have left WCW. But when he knew it was going to succeed, I mean, his ego went through the roof. And that was obviously very problematic later on but at first i think it was really very beneficial for wcw because he became fearless and he was willing to really try anything at all and a lot of what he did paid off really did work as we saw in 1997 but as liam just said yeah i mean it was 96 was almost like a year of investing and 1997 was the year that they reaped the rewards of it now, while WWF was very much in second place, 1997 was the year in which they invested, and it was 98 when they began to reap the rewards. Exactly. And, yeah. and obviously, that was, you know, combined with a, a huge shift in product direction, which, you know, I don't know when the attitude really started. Attitude era really started. Some people say it was the the day after Royal Rumble with the famous Austin. Tyson Vince angle, which to me is still the greatest angle ever, it was obviously the, the famous Vince speech, which I think opened Raw. I think it could have been the night after the D Generation X in your house pay per view. He did that famous speech in which he said that people didn't want, you know, black and white heroes and villains anymore. They wanted shades of grey. Shades of grey, yes. Shades of grey, you know. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe that influenced that book that sold a few copies, you know. <laughs> So and also, I mean, you could you could really wind it back and say and maybe go like back to the night after SummerSlam when sh I think it was the night that Shawn Michaels turned heel. I think it was the night after SummerSlam 1997. SummerSlam 97. Yeah, I remember that pay-per-view so, very well. And then he formed what would be DX with uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley in China shortly after that. And that whole act felt very different in the language he was using. And it just, you know, it felt like there was more sort of realism there. And this was obviously then stemmed from, um, you know, the, the Michaels Hart feud where they'd been, you know, effectively shooting on each other, not not in terms of physically, but verbally, you know, going off script, deviating from the script and saying things about each other, which 
The other one was not expecting, and that led to the big fight backstage. I think that was in June of that year. So quite when the Attitude Era started is up for debate. But I mean, what is not up for debate is that WWF in 1997, obviously Steve Austin had won King of the Ring the previous year, you know, and he'd been on fire ever since really, I guess, Survivor Series 1996. You know, it was really funny, wasn't it? Because he'd won King of the Ring 1996. And then I believe at SummerSlam, he was in the dark match against Yokozuna. Yeah. What's going on here? (laughs) This guy's just got himself over. You put him in the dark match. But I mean, at least come Survivor Series in 86, when uh, Brett, after Bret Hart, you know, agrees to his 20 year contract and everything. um, That then led to Austin versus Hart's Survivor Series. And at that point, you, you felt like Steve Austin was rolling. So, yeah, you had this real period of, of rebuilding in like from late 1996 throughout 1997. Um, and WCW is kind of getting a bit cocky. You know, Bischoff's kind of thinking that he's walking on water at this point and that he can do no wrong. Um, you know, and I don't know when they all started going wrong for them. That's another subject that's up for debate as well. In many ways, you could say Starcade 1997. I mean, I know they still had an amazing 1998 in terms of business, the best year ever. But Starcade 97, in many ways, was the, I think that was where it started falling apart because, you know, the okay, they drew the biggest ever number there, but it was such a lousy show. Yeah, and it's it, very interesting you should say that because that is, that is basically, that was exactly your analysis of it in our very first episode of this podcast. Yeah, and that was where we chose to start this journey. We thought it was the best place to consider, like, three years later that the company was sold for less money than the... Starcade buy rate wasn't the stat. It was absolutely incredible that yeah. Star Rate 97 drew more money than those they were sold for just over <laughs> three years later. But I'm glad you brought up the thing about Bischoff's ego because there's a, an interesting point about this. If you think about other sports and pretty much anything where there's a, a degree of fame and success to be achieved, I, when you say that he was very ambitious, I like to consider ambition. It's, it's almost like there's two different strains of it. There are a lot of ambitious people who like to chase for them ambition is chasing they want something and they and they have a lot of ambition to really really pursue it and then they get it and they're content and then you get the special ones don't you you get like the sir alex ferguson's the michael jordan's the the tom brady's and and guys like that who always say things like my my favorite championship is the next one they they have never won enough they're never happy with what they've got and they're always back on the chase trying to get something else and everything about eric bischoff not just in wcw after he reached this amazing status of being the one who who knocked vince mcmahon off of his perch uh, but everything he's done ever since then really if you think about it has been dining off of that revolutionary couple of years with Nitro and the cruiserweights and and the realism that the NWO brought and just such a great show. And that's what we said about Starcade 97. It was that first little sign, that first serious warning that WCW weren't looking for the next uh, May 27th, 1996. They weren't looking for the next New World Order. They really thought that they could just have their cake and eat it and keep the same guys at the table and just make this moment last forever. And that's, that's where Eric Bischoff's card was marked, unfortunately. Yeah. What do you make of that, Dean? Uh, 
very much. I, I think yeah, we we've seen we've seen even even over the course of 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 '96 with the the nitros, we've seen we're already getting the same main events, and we 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 said about how it was feeling a bit stagnant. Then obviously, as it's starting to feel stagnant. We get Hall and Nash come in. We get Hogan come in as a heel. Everything completely changes, and then we're getting again. We then get to that same sort of point, eighteen months or so later, where things are feeling a bit stale again. They haven't pulled the trigger as as they could have done or should have done with with Sting, and and that falls flat. I don't think they ever used Bret Hart properly um, to to his full potential. And and we've we've discussed this many times with various guests, Liam, that it was the the era of of politics and and creative control, and you know if you you wanted to to push people, but but other people, you know, the Hogans and the Savages and the Pipers and the likes, had the creative control where where they could just say no. Yeah, they they got to that point. They earned their their spot at the top, but instead of wanting to keep climbing, they pulled the ladder up. That was it, and that is that's always going to have a a, a limited shelf life. And that's where we got with, as I touched upon earlier, with '98. You know, there's there's still the cultural zeitgeist. They're still cool. They're still doing well uh, financially, but you can start to see those little little things like Hogan and Warrior, and uh, and uh, the, the whole thing of having uh, an NWO civil war. I mean, Starcade '97 was pretty much the the natural conclusion of the of the storyline, wasn't it? And then you still got not just a civil war, rather than uh, splitting them up and having them drop down the the card. Fair enough, they are right there on top of everyone else. They're on top of Sting and Hart and and even Goldberg when he comes along. And this is this is probably the meat of where I'm really going to start asking some questions, because one thing I've been salivating at the thought of talking to Finn about is uh, the coverage of of that period, 98, 99. Main reason being is that this is when I started to regularly purchase Power Slam magazine. Uh, I think I had a couple of uh, episodes, uh, a couple of. Uh, issues of it, or don't want to say episodes. <laughs> Couple of issues of Power Slam earlier in '98 was my first taste, but I always remember the, the first one of what started the streak where I purchased every episode of Power Slam after the issue that fell. I did it again, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, did yeah, you that's did it. Having, did Liam? Did you buy more than 83 consecutive episodes? <laughs> <laughs> Did you buy more than 83 consecutive episodes of that magazine? <laughs> right, see you guys. I'm going by. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I might as well swap the two around now. But yes, from from the uh, I think it was around December '98, I got the one with Kevin Nash and the big gold belt gag reflex, uh, where it said that he, he wins the belt and gives it away. And this is where 55. Remember it well. And and this is where I was really getting drawn back in. And this is where I was making more of a lobbying case to uh, to my parents to get whichever those W episodes were available on the on the cable box because obviously availability was limited. But it was from there. And we're talking specifically about nitros. Uh, And obviously I I know obviously Finn you commissioned. 
a lot of your writers to go out and cover pay-per-views and you did a few yourself but you were mo you were consistently in charge of the 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 first few pages known as what's going down weren't you yes yeah so this would be the tv recap wouldn't it I was in charge of everything on that magazine. Everything but, went through the F. Martin filter. But, but everything that, was your pe- that was your pen, wasn't it? The What's Going Down columns. It was, yeah. yeah. It was. So this was in your your words, and that was the TV recap. So I remember when yes. I when I saw those ninety eight ninety nine stuff. This was this was your stuff. So this is where I was really getting invested, and this was where this was my first direct connection with you via, via these episodes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I was obviously in control of the editorial direction of the magazine. I, you know, you may have one or both of you may well have heard spoken to people who used to write on the magazine. They probably haven't said very many nice things about me. I ran that thing with an iron hand. I did. I was in control of the editorial direction. And to me, everything in that magazine, you know, it had to be done a certain way. You know, it really did. And to me, it was all about getting out a message, and this was the Power Slam message. And we would discuss things, me and the other people who worked on it and everything, and they would put out their opinions as well. But, I mean, there was an overall direction. Like, there has to be with any publication, I feel. Just like there has to be with any wrestling promotion. There's got to be somebody who's in charge of it who is um, dictating the direction this thing goes in. Obviously, there can be some deviation, but you've got to have a general opinion because it's all got to be consistent you know you can't be having one person on page four saying oh this match was tremendous and then one person on page nine saying that match was terrible because people get confused by that i mean you know a stately rain manor character he was a law unto himself and he was you know he was like a little island in that magazine he could do what he wants <laughs> but the generally the the direction of it was listen this is the way we're going with this you know this is this is the way this is power slam's opinion on this so um but yeah, you, you know, you go back and look at it and it was it was definitely the whole thing about it there with WCW in that period was you had so much talent and you think, oh, it's great. You know, when Bret Hart went to WCW, you know, it never really occurred to me that this would be a huge problem. I thought it might be a problem, but I figured they'd work it out because there would be the potential of these big matches between him and the big stars in WCW, it would energize that main event scene, which we said was kind of getting a bit stale because it was the same matches. The NWO thing had kind of run its course. Um, I suppose in a way it made sense for them to do the, you know, black and white versus Wolfpack, Civil War type thing. Um, you know, that did extend it and they did get mileage out of that. They sold a lot of T-shirts with those new T-shirt designs. Yeah. Well, let's give them credit for that. And this is at this point, this is before TV rights uh, are the vast moneymaker that they are now. This was very important. So by extending that few, they sold a lot of T-shirts and made a lot of money out of that. Um, so, I mean, you had that, but Brett came in. You thought, wow, Brett versus Sting. We've never seen that. Brett versus Hogan, you know, we all thought that was going to happen in 1993 and it never did, you know, Brett versus um, Kevin Nash, obviously we'd seen that when he was Diesel and we'd seen Brett versus Razor Ramon, but we hadn't seen these matches for years and these were different guys now, you got Brett versus Randy Savage, that had taken place in WWF as well, but it was, still felt like a shiny new matchup 
And instead of Brett going in there and energizing the whole main event scene, you know, it became, you know, this the real battles were going on backstage, not in the ring. And there's this huge log jam of talent and all these people get earning so much money. And instead of working together for the betterment of the company, they're like trying to drag each other down and just not get the best out of each other. And I think Eric Bischoff had become such an you know egotistical, I think it was unapproachable basically at this point. Such he'd become a total narcissist. I mean, you hear him on that 83 weeks, and he's still that ego's still there. It's still not really. You'd think if I was Eric Bischoff, I don't know whether I would even be able to show my face in public or appear on a podcast <laughs> with that list of guys, list of balls ups, you know, since 1999. I mean, you know, okay, he had a really good run as an on screen performer in WWE from 2002 to 2005. I thought he was tremendous value for money there. It was yeah, loads of great. Yeah, they didn't let him anywhere near the book. Of course they didn't. <laughs> what the hell has that guy done in wrestling since then that of any value? So, yeah. I mean, that's 15 years. and uh, But he's still got that huge ego. He's still, he's still really a bit of a narcissist. Yeah. And you go back to 98 and, you know, you couldn't tell him anything. You know, that guy really thought he could walk on water and he's got all these people telling him he's brilliant and just all these political games going on backstage with guys trying to get over on other guys and not working together for the betterment of the company. And kind of in a sense, you think, oh, Eric's such a genius. He's created this dream roster. But they ended up, you know, basically like, you know, what's the phrase, like scorpions in a jar or something like that. They ended up turning on each other and, and you know, basically wrecking WCW from the inside instead of working together to make it better. And it's weird now when you hear these guys who were there at that time, who were in the 50s and the 60s, even the 70s in some cases. And it's like you don't really hear any of them saying this. All you get is a lot of people pointing the finger of blame of other people and not taking any responsibility. And I think that's a real tragedy that all these years on, these guys who, you know, now they're retired or now they're not really going to, they're not going to be getting that seven figure contract now. Why not just own up to it? Why not admit to what you did? You know, why not come clean? And it's like they can't because... You know, the because there's always a TNA or someone to hire yes. them. Yes. Because that yeah. strategy thing actually turned out to work for them by uh, by insisting it was someone else's fault. There'd always be a Dixie Carter or someone around yeah. to give them a chance to do it all over again and ruin another chance for us to have an alternative. Well, absolutely. I mean, 10 years ago, of course, when Bishop and Hogan went there, but I'm talking now in 2020, where it's hard really for me to believe that Bischoff's going to get that gig again. And it would just yeah. be nice to have some humility from these guys and say, listen, yeah, you know, I, we should have done this. And yeah, what a shame. And yeah, we were wrong. And, you know, my God, you know, we didn't see the big picture. We were just out for ourselves. It would just be nice yeah. for one of these guys to just admit that, you know, but also these guys are all the carny runs deep. It's still running through their veins. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, and when you've got that, you know, that carny spirit where you're always working, you're always trying to, make that next book it's very hard to turn it off yeah i mean i, I remember talk, talking about brett hart i remember when when he came over here a couple of years ago um to do some some evening with events with myself and and obviously we, we spoke about wcw and i mean it was clear from 
from what he was telling us that he he hated oh, working in his voice. Yeah, he hated <laughs> Eric Bischoff. Um, he he probably had the same look on his face as you did, Finn, when I mentioned the word onions. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, I remember he he said because he had that offer, that big offer from WCW um, in what was that? Was it ninety six? Where where he then got the twenty year deal from? Yeah, Vince. that's right. Yeah. And basically, he he didn't want to go to WCW. He had no interest in going. So when he was he was basically asked by Bischoff. He told us that Bischoff basically said, how much money will it take to bring you to WCW? So he quoted a similar sort of thing to, to Bischoff talking to Ted Turner, I guess. Yeah. He quoted, I can't remember what the figure was, but he quoted this ludicrous figure in the well in millions thinking, you know, they'll, they'll never, ever. Um, they'll never, ever agree to that. And then, you know, three days later, he gets a phone call from Eric Bischoff to say, Yep, we can offer you that. And that's when he went to Vince and said, WCW have offered me this, and they offered him a lower amount, but on on 20 years. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, when he, when he went to, to WCW, he, no pun intended, but you could tell his, his heart wasn't in it. He did, no. just didn't have the interest in, in going there. And then, and then obviously, shortly afterwards, uh, Owen dies, and he has a lot of time off, and and that obviously affected him enormously, as, as it would to anyone. And yeah, but I I don't think yeah I don't think he ever really wanted to to go there, and and I think with the likes of of your halls and your Nashes, there and and probably your Hogan's and Savages as well, they're looking out for them for themselves. There's sure. no thought about about pushing anyone, and and the only guy really who gets pushed is. Is DDP, who's close mates with with Bischoff, yeah. and Goldberg, who is this unstoppable juggernaut that that you can't really ignore. But even then, who's the guy who ends the streak? Kevin Nash. Yeah, well, they yeah, tried absolutely. to ignore him, didn't they? They really tried. He was he was what an undercard world champion for throughout that reign. Yeah, but I mean, also, I mean, you've got to remember as well in the interim there for Hart there was the double cross which, you know, absolutely destroyed him emotionally. He felt a massive sense of betrayal. And this has been said many times before that when he came into WCW, he was not the guy that he'd been at SummerSlam 1997 or one night only 1997. And he wasn't. And, you know, you know, Hart, it's like going back to what I was saying before, Hart, I've never really heard him take any responsibility for his utter dismal failure in WCW. Um, and he did have some good matches. I mean, the match with Flair sold out in 1998 was pretty good. But I didn't really feel like he brought that aggression and that he didn't really have that aura. I just felt he'd been, you know, he'd been squeezed out of him by the double cross. I mean, we've all seen wrestling with shadows and we've all seen the effect it had on him. So I think that needs to be acknowledged as well. And, uh, you know, I've been very consistent in my criticism of Bret Hart about this. And yeah, absolutely, WCW didn't use him to the best of his abilities. But I don't think Bret Hart, Bret Hart wasn't the same guy when he went into WCW that he'd been throughout 1987 when I think he was number one in the PS50 that year. I mean, he'd had such a tremendous year and he didn't bring any of that to WCW. So he's got to carry the can as well, or at least part of it. Let me ask you both the question because you'll both be coming at this from totally different points um, 
we've 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 all agreed that you know by 1997 WCW was the number one wrestling company in in America and, and in the world. Here in the UK, I always felt that even though WCW was doing what it was doing, that the the perception here in the UK was that WWF was was still number one and would always be number one. And I guess from from your perspective, Finn. Did the did the um, correspondence and the feedback you got from your readers echo that, or were you yes. noticing something different? And and from Liam as a, a fan at the time, how did how did uh, did you find that? So go to you, Finn, first. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. I mean, obviously WWF arrived here first. They were on Sky. I mean, WCW, the Nitro Show, was uh, started airing on TNT Europe. I think was it around about March of '96? I think it was. It was because we've just passed the episode that we both remember being the first one that was aired. Okay. Yes. Okay. Macho so, Man v Belfast Bruiser Fit Fiddly is the first match. Okay. So six of my mind. We in our country, and this is probably a thing I'm sure you know Liam can can speak on this one. And it, and it is kind of amazing looking back on this now. We had the Friday night war, didn't we? Yeah. Between Raw and Nitro on yeah. um, TNT, which there was TCM and then it became TNT. I think that's right, isn't it? I think that's right. The TNT. Yeah. That's right. And then I've got obviously we had Raw. Which basically was not shown on Monday nights. Then it was shown on Friday nights, and they were pulling up like numbers close to like 250,000 viewers a week on a Friday night, doing massive numbers over here. So I mean, Nitro was viewed by a lot of people, but it absolutely never was number one in this country. WWF always was. I mean, because they had the superior TV coverage uh, and. Most importantly, Sky screened the pay-per-view events, whereas WCW never did. You could watch them on DSF, couldn't you, for a time? Oh, uh, yes. yes. On a many-week delay with German commentary. But I, I never understood why WCW never got that sorted out in the UK. And also never understood why uh, they should have run a Nitro, paper, uh, a Nitro TV taping in the UK. And they never did during their peak. I know they did. They came over in 2000. Too little, too late. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. yeah, it was basically it was it was over by 18 months at that point. You know, they were in distant second place and were never going to catch up. But I mean, when they were hot, they never came over with a nitro. And I was just like, well, why not? And I was told the reason was because Bischoff didn't feel it was necessary to tour. The UK with WCW or Nitro at the time, and the Nitro most importantly, um, because they were doing great business in the US and Canada. In fact, they very rarely went into Canada. And that was the other big complaint, wasn't it? They got Bret Hart yeah. and they hardly ran any shows in Canada. Um, but to me, it wasn't so much about drawing the money. It was about the messaging to the wider world. If WCW comes over to the UK, you bring Hogan over, you bring all the big names, they'll get the mainstream coverage. You've got all those guys talking about WCW, which the mainstream media really didn't. I mean, I know wrestling didn't get that much mainstream coverage back then, um, you know, even when it was enormous in 98, 99, at least not in the UK. But I mean, if it did, it was always WWF that got the coverage. So to me, it was about coming over to the UK and just really 
kind of taking Vince on in his territory because to me, the UK, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, Dean, the UK was kind of the last territory that Vince bulldozed. You know, I mean, OK, it was doing really, it was on its last legs in 88 anyway, but WWF arrived over here. Obviously, it was on cable before the official Sky launched in 89. But once WWF was on these shores, I mean, British wrestling was in even more trouble because we'd seen WWF. We'd seen, you know, this big budget presentation and the guys wrestling at Catford Town Hall couldn't compete with that. (laughs) Yes, I I remember well when when they they aired the, the first the first episode of WWF wrestling on the, the, the wrestling TV slot, because uh, it was 1987. And by, by that point, it wasn't just joint promotions. It, they, they had joint promotions and they had all-star and they had WWF and all-star yes. was coming across as much more modern than joint promotions. But then, yeah, you'd see, yeah, you, as you said, you'd, you'd see, you know, um, I don't know, Terry Rudge and Barry Douglas wrestling at Bedworth Civic Hall. And then the next week you saw Randy Savage in the ma- and uh, Hulk Hogan from Madison Square Garden in the Lumberjack match. Yes. And, and there's just no comparison. And yeah, and yeah I'd, I'd heard of Hulk Hogan, but I had no idea really about about anything. And and, and you see this and you're, you're just blown away. And, and British wrestling, as you quite rightly say, never, never looks the same again and that was that was a that was a factor of of many in the demise of of british wrestling at at that time but i mean liam from your perspective as a a fan and a power slam reader at this point in time were you still in your head was wwf still number one so i I think the best thing the best way to uh set so i was just getting a bit of feedback there I have no plans on trying to edit this, so I may as well just start again. <laughs> Sorry, everyone, for hearing that, but I want to make sure you'll hear what I have to say because it's obviously very important. I couldn't keep a straight face for that. Um, for me, the best way to look at it is at secondary school, where I was uh, from 96 to pretty much the end of Nitro in 2001. So my time at secondary school and... Uh, you know, we're with the other guys talking about what was going on, uh, you know, whichever fellow wrestling fans there were. In 1997, which was a year we were discussing, that was when WCW, in a lot of ways, can be considered as overtaking them. It was definitely still, nonetheless, more, more talk about what was happening in WWE. There was more commotion about taping Raw and there'd be a little system where some guys would get some you know, some blank tapes and they had the technology at the time to do some copies and they'd make a little extra money passing those around or sharing them with their mates and things like that. Uh, and I remember around 1998, uh, I was starting to receive tapes that would have Raw and Nitro on them take the adverts out, you cram it onto a three-hour tape. That was a thing that we started doing in 1998 because clearly to the to the schoolyard type, um, this was the period where it was important to have both sides of the Monday Night War. Nine, that wasn't until 1998. And, and it's funny, with the whole delay reaction thing, this was, you know, people were speaking enthusiastically and in a pro-WCW tone about things like... Scott Hall turning on Kevin Nash and the last call gimmick that they distastefully gave Hall and the mess of a war games with three teams and 
you know, and, and the Ultimate Warrior coming in and things like that. People spoke about that in, in, very, in very high terms, being being schoolboys, which wasn't so much that they actually thought that the garbage being churned out by WCW at the time was was actually really good, but obviously they they caught that wave. And this was when it was cool to talk about WCW. So if they do something, you react positively. But that doesn't last long. And that delayed reaction theory that I mentioned earlier comes into it. But yeah, 1998, as as a teenager, that was when you could really sense around those other fans. From then on, people wanted both results. People were taping both things. But yeah, we never did have access to pay per views, which didn't help. It didn't. So, I mean, we're watching Nitro. I think they ended up showing Thunder eventually, didn't they? We, we could watch Thunder as well over here. Yeah, it always felt like a bit of a chase, the cable channels. It changed a lot, didn't it? You knew Raw was on Sky Sports. Even if it was Friday instead of Monday, you knew where it was. But I remember there be there was like four different methods, like at least, of having to change. There was a Bravo period as well, wasn't there? Yes, yeah. there was, yeah. yeah just so yeah. tough to ke- keep up with it, which didn't help. He didn't. So, but it's I just never understood why this was not more of a market for Bischoff, and and also with him being so ambitious as well. And maybe he was he was not really looking at things from an international perspective, and yeah. clearly that must have been the reason. Type you two would... ambition, though. As I said earlier, <laughs> he he had his moment of ambition. He got what he wanted, and he was dining on it. So instead of trying to make money over here, he was doing shows for free in Sturgis so that he could attend the rally. Yeah. In, in his yeah. mind, he'd accomplished it. He had, he had comp- as they say on the in-betweeners, completed it, mate. In his mind, that's what he'd done. That was it. It was done. He didn't have to do anything else, unfortunately. Yeah. That's it. I mean, for Vince, it was like when he got to the top of the mountain, well, he was never at the top of the mountain because there was then another peak visible. And when yeah. he got to then there was another one. So the journey would never end. You know, for Bischoff, yeah, it felt like to him, right, well, I've done it now. Uh, I've reached the apex. There's nowhere left to go. But to me, it's like, well, why not target the UK? You know, why not add that to your list of ambitions? Why not add that to your list of um, you know, weapons or ammunition that you can hurl at Vince McMahon and WWF? We went over to the UK. We absolutely nailed it, sold out. Everyone's talking about WCW and the messaging. I mean, it would have been such a thing for him to brag and boast about on Nitro. It would have been a huge moment for WCW and a huge um, boost for it in terms of, you know, potential licensing agreements, merchandise. I mean, it was always a bit tricky getting WCW merchandise over here. I mean, you know, WWF merch, you could get it. I mean, obviously, they ran shows and things like that. But it was quite easy to get WWF merch over here, or at least easier. And little things like getting WCW merchandise was quite difficult. You had to really search for it. And and this is another thing that fans today will probably find hard to comprehend. What And like that story you just talking there about kids bringing in VHS tapes to school and then people having to pay for them. <laughs> you know, Dean and I, we used to go to the tape traders back in the day and you'd have to pay for yeah. tapes and all this type of thing. And then you have to wait three weeks for it. But it didn't matter because you were willing to wait three weeks for it because how the hell else were you going to watch it? But to me, yeah, that was one of the things that Bischoff really, he absolutely blew it. I remember writing about this in Progressing Through the Power Slam years, that for WCW, there was a huge market waiting for them in the UK that was hungry for their product. Mm. The ratings, I mean, told the story each week on TNT. And like, 
Bischoff was blind to it, or maybe he just didn't care. Maybe he was so damn rich, he becomes so damn comfortable. You know, they always say, don't they, the comfort zone is the enemy of all promise. You know, maybe he just got into his own comfort zone and just felt like he was invincible and, you know, almost sort of bunker, you know, he was in his own little bunker and he didn't, you know, he was he felt safe there. He didn't want to do anything else because kind of was maybe afraid of failing and uh, that would, you know, put a big chink in the armour. But then, of course, in 1998, even though, you know, the promotion had its best year financially, the numbers, the ratings started falling and WWF ended up winning the ratings war for the first time in, was it April 13th that year? It was just after WrestleMania, yes. wasn't it? It was the yeah. Austin McMahon teased match, wasn't it? Yes. With the one arm yeah. tied behind the back, whichever yes. one that was. Yeah, 13th of, I've got it in front of me here, 13th of April, they won, then um, WCW won the next week, and then WWF kind of took over for, for a little bit. I mean, that that does bring me to another another point I was going to make, which was that in um, the, the date was, it was 26th of January, 98, where Nitro expanded to three hours every week. Now, Raw... Raw didn't immediately follow Nitro in expanding to two hours because um, it was it was almost a year later, February the third, ninety seven, that Raw went to two hours. Raw didn't go to three hours until twenty twelve, so way way <laughs> after the the Nitro era. To to me, I always found a three hour TV show just too much, and also it took away the prestige of a, a three hour long pay-per-view show yeah. because if nitro is the same when we talked to to sonny ono um he he was of the opinion that actually it's it was a good thing because it it meant there were more spots open for more wrestlers to have more matches and international talent and the mexicans the new japan guys how how did how did you feel about it um, I'll go to you first, Finn. How did you feel about a three-hour weekly TV show? Is it Does it become a bit of a slog at that point? Yeah, because, I mean, also at this point, they've added Thunder, and that's a two-hour show, so they're having to do five hours of prime time. Plus, I think Saturday night was still going at the, that point, and there was, there was like the weekend shows as well, but they'd kind of shriveled into insignificance by this point. But they were putting out too much product. They didn't have the staff to do it. People were weary. Um, it meant they were burning through their storylines. Um, it meant there was even more pressure on them from TNT and TBS to deliver ratings. And it just as if the walls were closing in on them. So this whole thing of and, and again, I kind of diluted the product. You want at the end of each show, you want the audience to want more. You don't want them thinking, oh, my God, that was a slog. You know, I'm not sure if I can sit through three hours of it next week. I think I'll record it and fast forward through the boring bits. I mean, that's not the reaction you want. But when they tacked on that extra hour, um, Bischoff reckons that he didn't want to do it. This was a TNT decision uh, made by Brad Siegel. And the reason they did it was because it only cost a little bit more money in production costs each week for them to have a third hour of programming. Um, and I think the way it was sold to Bischoff was, listen, you'll be on the air before Raw comes on the air. You'll get the jump on them. You'll be able to hook those fans. You know, they won't be going off and watching Raw. And it's like, well, instead, they ended up, you know, basically running the fans off because people, you can have too much of a good thing. And the worst thing about Nitro was it went from being a good thing most weeks to 
a thing that was kind of drawn out many weeks and became a bit of a chore to watch. I went to see Nitro live in, I think it was it was either the end of February or no, it was early March of 1998. And it was in Philadelphia in the bigger venue there. It was sold out, huge energy. Fans were really into the product. And I remember falling asleep at one point. June. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I always remember the, you know, this was Goldberg had caught fire by this point. And I remember when he came out, I think he might have been wrestling La Parker. I, I could have that wrong, but it was like a high powered squash. And like you knew Goldberg was going to be something special. But it was, yeah, too much product. I don't think they had the, the booking staff to handle it. They spread themselves far too thin. I mean, you had talent who were kind of refusing to work thunder, especially when it became uh, very much the B show and less effort was um, invested or less effort went in, into it each week because the focus was very much on Nitro, especially when Raw started beating it in the in the uh, head-to-head ratings war. So thunder became kind of this wilderness zone where people who weren't doing anything were dumped so there was nothing compelling at all on thunder so the stars didn't work on it so that only you know accelerated thunder's decline and then that also then harmed morale that was going through the floor anyway because there's this massive gulf between all the guys on top who are making seven figures and the guys underneath who are still making great money but not seven figures and feel like they're not you know the grievances aren't being heard and that there's no good mobility and just the whole you know the whole package just kind of starts collapsing on itself because you know they took too much on you know i'm a great believer that you should never do more than you can do well you know and i've actually broken my own rules on that one before but i don't do that now but i you know i've learned from bitter experience but don't do more than you can do well otherwise everything you do suffers and i think that was the upshot of nitro going to three hours in you know in tandem with thunder being two hours each week and all the other stuff they had to do and has has Raw's ratings suffered? I mean, since they went to to three hours in 2012, generally yes. speaking. Yes, they have. <laughs> I mean, for a variety of reasons, obviously not just that, but yeah, but it's it's it's, it's not been a, an advantage for them either. Well, I mean, for them in the sense it has because they were getting paid so much money and TV rights now are, uh, are where the money is. So you can understand why WWE did it. Um, I think there was some reluctance and I think a lot of people were opposed to it, but they couldn't turn the money down for WCW. Obviously, they were paid more for providing more and a further hour of programming each week. You know, Bischoff was the guy who got um, Turner to actually pay WCW rights fees. You know, this was something Watts was never able to do. Anderson was never able to do. You know, the much maligned Jim Hurd was never able to do. You know, if WCW had been paid TV rights fees for the program that it provided for the for TBS, it actually would have made money during the Jim Hurd era. I'm sure this I'm sure you're both aware of this. I'm sure people are I'm probably not. This is not a revelation, but it is worth pointing out. So, I mean, WCW, I don't think wanted. Well, Bischoff claims he didn't want to do it. I do believe him, uh, but he didn't have much choice. As for Vince McMahon with WWE from 2012, there's so much money being pumped into the company 
from their their TV partner that they kind of felt like they couldn't turn it down. Um, but yeah, there's been many times. I think actually Raw is it's kind of picked up. It's kind of doing all right now. The last few weeks have been I've enjoyed them and they've got the balance right. And this Thunderdome thing has been a huge improvement on the shows from the performance center in terms of, yes. you know, atmosphere and just the whole presentation. Uh, but there's been, you know, many periods uh, over the last eight years, it is now the three hour period where people are like, oh my God, you know, Roger, can you not just go back to two hours? And isn't SmackDown so much better because it's two hours. Uh, but again, you know, money talks and when, your network or when your channel's paying you so much damn money it's you know it's all right for us to sit here and condemn it but if someone's offering you know us three say we're in charge of wwe and usa network is offering us tens of millions more you know in money that's going to be you know so much of which is going to be profit to produce a third hour of programming each week would any of us turn that down really would we maybe we would but it'd be a very difficult decision to make yeah, definitely. Liam, from your perspective as a, a teenage fan at this point in time in secondary school, three hours Nitro, is that, is, is that a grind for you? I'll be honest, I, I'm sure it would have been. But in the nature that I described earlier, uh, you know, ad, ad breaks was would be whizzed through. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain there were four hour cassettes as well. But yep. uh, there's still a lot of free access. So you've got to remember what we were getting we all, was all put on one videotape. So if there was a situation where raw minus adverts plus nitro minus adverts was still more than the videotape, it was it was getting cut somehow. So in the, in the manner I was taking it then, uh, it wasn't really a factor. But the, the, the time around when I'd, uh, I'd be starting to watch Nitro in all of its three-hour <clears throat> glory would have been, <laughs> would have been because it was around spring of 1999 was when we jumped on the uh, the digital revolution and we got Sky Digital, which was like hot new thing at that point. And after bouncing on and off of cable because of whether or not it was worth the money or whatever and having to rely on other people at school and things like to get my wrestling fixed when we didn't have it at home. Uh, from 99 onwards, I was set up with Sky Digital. And it was a combination of that and some of the stuff that Finn was writing in What's Going Down that drew me back into it a little bit. And one of the things I wanted to speak to you about Finn was... At a point where WCW was pretty clearly, yeah, they, they've kind of shown that they, they had their, their their one move and that move was running out of steam and they kept trying to repeat and rehash it and it wasn't yeah. working. We got to a stage in the spring where they actually started um, acknowledging on air that they were losing <laughs> to, yes. to, to W. I think Bischoff, who had been written out and run off by Ric Flair at the end of that storyline. So he wasn't even particularly on the air at the moment. So he wasn't really an active heel, which he'd been for so long. But he were, he was doing these interviews and saying, oh, we've got to turn things around. And then and then wrestlers are coming out like um, Dean Malenko and Buff Bagwell and saying, yeah, the Ric Flairs and the Randy Savages are, are, are holding us back and they're, they, they're afraid of us. And that made me personally go, hang on a second. Are we about to get all of the all of the the big main eventers 
having to band together to actually try to keep down the, the Benoits and Malenkos and all that. Because, uh, and I was speaking to other fans, um, that is something we very much would have been interested in. But obviously it never came to fruition because none of the, the big namers were, were willing to actually do something that could be presented as a, 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 as a fair battle for instance, but but the promise of that, similar to how, do you know how Austin versus my man was amazing and then they've tried to rerun Babyface versus Evil Boss about a billion times since and yeah. it was diminishing returns and it was never as good and it's just a horrible rehash. And yet when they did Daniel Bryan versus the Authority, suddenly it had a good feeling again and people were behind him. People really wanted Daniel Bryan to overcome the odds because it had that sense of reality when triple yeah. h came out and said things like b plus player and they did the margin they did such a good job of of running that line where they weren't just ruining everything they weren't smashing down the fourth wall but they were they were using reality to 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 fuel the storyline and you could sense it and it felt real because of it which is a big difference from all these other workshop things. And yeah, that's yeah, the were, feeling they I tapping got. Into our, they were tapping into the real emotions of the public, what they yeah. were thinking. So they could recognise that Daniel Bryan was really good. And they were like, no, that guy's wrong. you know. And Daniel Bryan needs to shut his mouth. Yeah, and that's what Young versus Old would have been in 99, because I know they, they eventually ran New Blood Millionaires Club, with yeah. the, with the, which was just an absolute ADHD mess of storylines and again the the veterans made sure they were squashing the younger guys so it, so the point didn't really work but we were at a point where we had what was it bagwell malenko saturn benoit and a few others turning around and saying and at this point hogan's off tv as well so that, that gives you half a chance maybe because you're dealing with guys like flair and savage who probably will and, and have in the past done the honours and, and, and made other guys look good. And just for a little bit, I don't know if you remember that, Finn, just for a little bit, it looked like they might have had something interesting post-NWO. Um, I mean, I do know what you mean. And on paper, you, you, you couldn't be more right, of course. you know. And But I mean, this would have been the 99 period, wouldn't it? Yeah. After uh, Uncensored 99... And into that April May period, and I remember Rob, Rob Butcher did a column in uh, a color commentary column, and this was this was you know was saying oh Finley you're in, Finley's in charge of all the editorial policy, you know I want to kind of backtrack on that one. I was for most of it, but I remember he did this column, and I didn't change any of it. You know it was. was I know rough. that feeling. So sometimes something rough. lands on you, and you're like, you know what, this this is going this is just going straight up. <laughs> yeah, no, there was probably a bit of tinkering because I couldn't help myself. But I mean, it was just, <laughs> in all honesty. But I mean, this was him. You know, this was Colin. It was one of the best things he did. A lot of really good stuff for Power Simon. It was one of the best things he ever did. And it was this column all about all the inconsistencies and nonsensical aspects of WCW's storylines and feuds. It was all who's in charge. And it was just like, and this was, I think, after maybe after Slambury 1999. Yeah, I remember that. That was a and great piece, was, you're right. And it was just, he just, ne I mean, he probably could have gone on for another thousand words <laughs> explaining just how scatterbrained it all was and that none of it made any sense. And it's like, you can get away with that for a while. Because if, you know, people say, oh, the attitude here, it was all great. No, it wasn't. A lot of it was garbage. 
You know, go back and watch it if you don't believe me. And a lot of what WWF did in 1999, some of that didn't make any sense either. But the really big stuff did. And when it mattered, you know, they delivered usually on the stipulations. They delivered on the big matches. And, you know, they they sort of earned your trust as a fan. You know, it's like, you know, it's like when you watch a TV show and it kind of loses its way and you don't want to admit it at first. But after a while, you get to the point where, yep, that show has lost me. I'm turning off. And it was like that was what happened with WCW. With WWF, there was still enough really good stuff in there. You know, a little diamond, you know, enough diamonds in the rough and certainly the big central feuds. And there was enough characters that were over that you would let it go. You know, you give them a pass on all that silly stuff that didn't really matter with the you know, Ministry of Darkness or whatever. Uh, but with WCW, it was just a full on absolute this bombardment each week of just gibberish, booking gibberish. And you look back and you think, you know, I've heard all the stories about how guys were the only real you know, focus and the only real uh, goal they had of each trip to nitro or raw or going on the road for the house shows which just get tanked up after the shows you know and just you know uh sampling the delights of the road you know which is a euphemism <laughs> i'm sure a lot of people know what i mean by that uh, but i mean it just became this sort of like madhouse where there was just everyone was not everyone but lots of people were drinking too much there was a lot of people who were taking far too many drugs and they just really lost their focus and were not really committed to making WCW as good as it could be. And that combined with the fact that WWF had been ahead in the ratings war for a year and like, uh, or at least mostly for a year. Well, yeah, actually more than a year at this point. And, you know, morale had gone. You know, Bischoff, really the central theme of this was that Bischoff had this one goal in his career and he achieved it. And it was like, right, well, what's next? It's like, well, you know, there isn't anything next for me. You know, I've done everything I ever wanted to do. So, you know, at that point, he probably should have just retired and let someone else have a go yeah. if he had no further ambitions or aspirations. And it was really sad to see WCW at that time just falling apart and knowing that it, the, the solutions actually were quite simple on paper, but the only person who could have really pushed them through would have been Bischoff because he would have had to have told all the people with creative control and these big money players that things are going to be different from this point onwards. You know, the actual you know booker and the people who were the agents, lots of them felt powerless to change anything. Uh, and some of them were also part of the problem because they were earning big money and they were just basically in it for, for the party. Um, so I think there were so many factors and the fact that lots of the undercard performers just in the end had enough. They realized they were never going to move up the ladder. You know, it didn't matter how good their matches were, were or how many T-shirts they sold or, you know, how much, how many people complained about their treatment. It wasn't going to be acknowledged or recognized and nothing was going to change. And lots of those undercard performers, obviously Jericho was one of the first to go and then there was the Radicals went in, uh, Jericho went in, was it June? I think it was June of 99. The Radicals went in January of 2000. And like Raven quit as well. I always felt like he was somebody who could have been a bigger player in WCW than he was. 
And he was somebody who knew that he could never break through that, you know, proverbial glass ceiling. It was never going to yeah. happen. So he ended up quitting. There was that famous wrestlers meeting, wasn't there, in August yes. 59, where Bischoff says, you know, he's lost the plot by this point. You know, he's lost the locker room. It's like that, you know, the football, that football term to use, isn't it? Yeah. You know, he's lost the confidence of his locker room. You know, you know, he's lost the locker room. That's it. It's over for him. And at that point, Bischoff had lost his locker room. And he says, right, anyone who's pissed off, he can leave. And Raven said, right, I'm going. And then Bischoff kind of says, uh, well, you can't go to WWF, uh, but you can go to ECW. And he, he's kind of been exposed as, you know, full of bluff and bluster. You know, it's like watching, a, you know, Boris Johnson at PMQs, you know. It's just like, you know, Bischoff has just been exposed as this guy who's not really in charge, not in control, you know, not. And, and everything, obviously, originality, we haven't seen any of that in ages. You know, you know, they're no longer innovating. They're just yeah. scrambling to try and... I think the analogy I came up with in pro wrestling through the power some years was they were in a boat and the boat had a lot of holes in it. And instead of trying to fix those holes, they made new ones. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think with Jericho, it's such a good example because... Everyone, I think, saw how talented Chris Jericho was, how much upward momentum and potential he had that, as you say, never got realised. The, the, the glass ceiling was there. He goes to WWF. His first segment is a big entrance and he's interrupting The Rock and he's being portrayed on a level with, with The Rock. And that sends a message to everyone in in WCW mid-card that if you've got the talent, you have got, you've got this potential here, this opening here, because they've really made Jericho a shop window for people jumping ship. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Yeah. I mean, obviously Jericho, it did, you know, there was quite a few problems for Chris, but I mean, you know, the point you're making is absolutely valid. You know, there's also a huge, you know, the huge countdown clock, you know, the huge push yeah. before he arrived and they really made him seem like a big deal before he even appeared that night. Yeah. So you're right, the message in there to WCW was frustrated, you know, disgruntled, fed up, come and work for us and we'll give you a chance. Yeah. I mean that that carries on to this day. You look at look at the difference between the port the the, the presentation and the portrayal of, of Killer Cross in Impact to Carrion Cross in, in NXT and there, you know, it's the same guy, but it's absolute poles apart so they can still do it and on, on the flip side you look at you know, how they've screwed up someone like ricochet so it, it works yeah. both ways but yeah when yeah. when when they when they get behind someone they they there is no one like the wwe to, to push someone but um yeah one one closing question then for, for both of you um on reflection yeah we're, we're here we're 25 years after nitro started we're coming up to 20 years since it, it ended looking back and looking at, at modern day wrestling now what are the the legacies that monday nitro have have left um american tv wrestling start with you liam uh well as both of you have touched upon in various parts of this i think the one way to sum up the main part is that they they not only did they change things they forced others to change 
and that's one thing we can agree when we look at how the 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 one thing that has come closest to changing the appearance of WWE's presentation in 20 years is a fucking pandemic. Uh, we can we can agree that we need that sometimes, and and that's the sort of thing. It's a sort of legacy they've left that you hope all elite wrestling can achieve because I'm not going to get drawn into this petty thing that some of the fans have about who's better or or this this current social media term of, of stanning someone which apparently means when you when you like support support one side no matter, matter what but um yeah there you got the the AEW and the WWE stands apparently yeah. um yeah, you, you learn something new every I, day. I heard of it and had no, I, I heard of it and had no idea what it meant. So thank you for telling me that. that I'll give you a question. quick, I'll give you a quick freebie as well. If you hear people talking about shipping something, it's when they want two people in like a TV show to get together. Thank so you if, very you, much. if you're shipping Ross and Rachel, you want Ross and Rachel to be together at the end. Or if you're shipping Rachel and Joey, for instance, I, I kept that one a little dated for you guys, you know, back to the Friends era. <laughs> Thank We're you. doing very, a Nitro, Nitro Years podcast. Might as well make a Friends reference. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the, the main thing I really hope is that rather than getting caught up in all this, who's better, who's winning? more people need to be thankful that we've got another major mainstream thing because after what WCW did in those later years, uh, after what TNA did by basically repeating all of WCW's mistakes, it was uncanny. Um, I, at one point, didn't think we'd ever get another shot at this and I don't think we ever were if AEW doesn't at least establish enough staying power to be a firm number two. And this isn't a Monday Night Wars thing. This is about being a number two. And, and Nitro set that. They had their periods of controlling it. But one of the reasons I really zoned in on that 99 period where it looked like they might have had something just to make them interesting. Yeah, they might not have... Um, caught back up they're always thinking about yeah what have we got to do to beat them again but i mean just by tweaking a few things they could have at least carried on as a as an alternative and carried more selling power that when everyone makes the excuse of aol time warner uh just not wanting them they could have made themselves a lot more viable to other sellers because at the end of the day when they were on the market they were an entity that lost 60 million dollars in one year so that merger wasn't the the, the biggest of their problems uh, no. And yeah, ho hopefully that that legacy of WCW is something we see again in our lifetimes of just making things happen and forcing enough change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, just to take that further, you know, that '99 period, and just you know, for another point on what I was saying before was that I think what WCW had to do was, and I think there was some realism there, and they knew that they were. Obviously, they've acknowledged this on the air for some time. They knew they were in second place. But instead of doing what WWF had done in, from late 1996 onwards and throughout 1997, which was rebuilding, they just never seemed to try to do that. Uh, well, they didn't try to do that. I mean, there would be a few things that would be started, but they would be very quickly abandoned. And there was never a long-term plan to try and rebuild the promotion. And this is a sports team thing, isn't it? Um, I watched a little bit. What's that Netflix show on the Chicago Bulls called? Is it Last Dance, is it called? Yeah. Is that what it's called, Last Dance? Well, whatever it's the called. Bulls the one on the Chicago one, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that I think one of the phrases, and I only watched the part of the first episode, was 
we knew we were at this point where we had to go through a real rebuilding phase. And lots of sports teams have to do that, don't they? So they've had all this success, but then the star players retire um, and then it's going to take time to rebuild new star players for them to be that huge force again. But there is this sort of acknowledgement and this awareness and, and more importantly, this discipline from within that, they ca- that they're not going to win next year. But next year is not about winning. It's about rebuilding so we can win in two years. And that, to me, was what WCW should have done in 1999. There should have been this concerted effort for by all. You know, this, instead of that team meeting where Eric Bischoff says, whoever's pissed off, they can just leave. It should have been about bringing people together, mm. not pushing mm. them apart. And that's what a real leader does. And, you know, it's like it's like it's not until you're really under pressure and the chips are down that you really know the true metal of a person. And, you know, Bischoff basically just blew it. I mean, he, he fell apart. He just showed that he wasn't a man who had the character that Vince McMahon had. You know, when Vince was down, obviously there's some very low moments for him in night, late 96 and 1997, but he held it together and he rebuilt. That's what WCW needed to do, and he never did that. To, as far yeah, as, yeah. and you to know, quote Arn Anderson, uh, was it adversity introduces a man to himself? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, you know, you'll find that is absolutely true. It does. And then, but it's easy to talk about it. There's a big difference between talking about it and doing it and making those difficult decisions and, ups, and upsetting those people you consider friends, which is also, I think, just on a final point with Bischoff here in this period, before I sum up, is that that was another thing that Bischoff became too pally with a lot of these top guys. And that's very dangerous because it means you can't make those difficult decisions or it means it's very difficult to make those difficult decisions. Um, you know, and that's a, an old style wrestler, canny thing, where you buddy up to the boss, you know, and, Ooh. you know, all these things that you do to make sure that the boss can never fire you. But there's always, I think, got to be a distance there. It's got to be a work relationship where if someone's out of line, then yeah. I mean, obviously, Bischoff did do that in 98 when National Hall had pissed him off. But it was a completely ridiculous response to that. He ended up firing Sean Warman. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, God, yes. And it was just like, they'd had a big blow up. It's like, well, don't do that. I mean, you know, that's and that there was, again, a real blow to morale. And like it was, again, the message was sent to the locker room that these top guys will be safeguarded. But someone in the mid card, well, he's expendable. So he's the one who's going to be buoyed. And it worked out great for him because he got the job with WWF and he kind of, you know, revived his career there. So that was in in the long run good for him. But I think it sent a dreadful message to the locker room from Bischoff. Uh, And I know, obviously, you know, you can go through all many of the things that Vince has done and he's done some pretty damn low down things as well. Of course he has. I'm just really using that as an example now. But anyway, in summation, um, Nitro, yeah, revolutionized TV, wrestling TV. It changed it. It made ratings into this huge part of the business. I mean, you know, here we are like, <coughs> excuse me, here we are like 25 years later. And ratings are still this thing that people talk about each week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and prior to that, no one really did. But I think, you know, the real thing that I think shows how influential and consequential consequential this whole period was is that Bischoff has named his podcast 83 weeks 
And still he's dining off of it. He's still dining out on this period to this day. Mm-hmm. And that there, I think, tells you all you need to know about how big this was. It's like me calling a podcast Managing Terry Funk, isn't it, Liam? Well, I did have to talk you out of that one. So yeah, yeah it was it was on the list. Yeah, but no, absolutely. It's as you as you said, Finn. It's his it's his crowning achievement. And yeah, once 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 he did that, what what's next? And there wasn't there wasn't anything. And I mean, it's very interesting that I, I um a few years ago I interviewed Dixie Carter um for a, a website and and I asked I asked her a question um that I ask. I ask everyone um, when I'm interviewed if you could if you could turn the clock back and change one thing in your wrestling career, what would it be? And um, and it caught her by surprise because she uh, she obviously wasn't expecting that. And she she basically said, um, "Did she say, uh, oh, Dean, I'm spoilt for choice?" <laughs> she uh, well, what she did say was that um, she would never have hired Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at least she's. At least she's smart enough to realise that that was a catastrophic blunder. So yes. I'll give her credit for that. So, right. Well, we will we will bring this uh, this episode to a close before we uh, get into the uh, the tricky third hour, which we've all established is not where you want to go. So, um, <laughs> I will just, very good. <laughs> I would just uh, leave it to say so. Um, Finn, where can where can people uh, get hold of you on social media? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Finley Martin. I'm on Facebook at Finley Martin. Uh, you know, the Power Slam series books are available from Amazon. And as I've mentioned, you know, I'm involved with Inside the Ropes magazine. So please check that out. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that we're winding up because my voice is gone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can uh, get hold of us on Twitter at becausewcw or facebook.com forward slash becausewcw. Go to our website, becausewcw dot podbean.com for the full archive of all of our episodes this one will be up as well on hookedonwrestling.co.uk as part of nitro week finn thank you so much for taking the time to join us for what has been an absolutely fascinating discussion i've really uh, really valued your time thank you very much oh yeah thanks for having me i really enjoyed it and and you know i've kind of thought of things and said things that i never really considered before so uh, hopefully, you know, you've, you know, you've pushed me to be a better podcaster. So thank you both <laughs> for that. Thank you very much. And on behalf of uh, Liam, this is me, the Twisted Genius Dean Ayers, saying thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you ringside.